0: What's happening folks? Good to be back with you this week on Taking Notes. I want to talk leadership this week because there is so much going on in the world that requires, and is begging for good leadership. And there's so much happening in the world where leadership is faltering and we are seeing spin out and the chaos that results. Leadership is always present and front in my mind because when I am not helping students acclimate to my institution after leaving elementary school and transitioning into middle school, I am also teaching a leadership class, one of the best parts of my day, to be able to actually be in front of students. And so one of the things that we do right off the bat when we start the year is that we brainstorm virtues and attributes of good leaders have students think about what are the things that they admire in leaders. And we take that brainstorm list and we pare it down and we ultimately come up with a leadership definition that the class can work from for the remainder of the year. And ultimately, when we get to that final list and we start taking words out, a couple of words are always in the mix year over year. And so those are the ones that I want to talk about because they struck me as I was going through my weekend. So the first one I want to talk about is accountability. A leader has to be accountable. They have to be willing, if they're going to be the person out in front, to take the weight just as much when things are going bad as when they are going good. And this weekend, accountability jumped out at me because I spend the majority of my weekend when I am not at school, and even a fair amount when I am at school, attending sporting events, watching, um, commentating on, paing sporting events, and so I'm I'm always immersed in the sports world. And you couldn't go anywhere in the sports world this weekend and not hear about. Coach Jim Harbaugh of the University of Michigan and the sign stealing scandal issue that his Wolverines and the coaching staff are caught up in. There was a question, you know, of how and when and what kind of punishment he would get, as it has been proven that a now former member of the Wolverines coaching staff was obtaining signals for upcoming opponents in uh, in a way that was against the rules of the Big Ten Conference, which the Wolverines are part of. And it's so interesting that this is even an issue because much like when the Houston Astros in baseball got caught. When it comes to stealing signs, obtaining signs, this is something that everybody is doing. It's not even a really egregious thing. doesn't matter if the sport is. Football, as it is in this case, basketball, baseball, soccer. If you are in a sport where the coaches are on the sidelines and having to be as much a part of the action as the participants on the field. There's going to be that interplay of trying to figure out what the other team is doing, what the game plan is. And in this case, the Wolverines get called out because they took it too far. It was funny that, you know, as we got closer and closer to a punishment for Coach Harbaugh, one of the coaches that spoke out was the head coach of Purdue, who Michigan played in the Big Ten um, championships last year. And you know as he's speaking out and he's putting it out there that Wolverines should be punished, it was then later disclosed that he had received Michigan's signs and calls ahead of them playing in last year's championship. So this is something that happens. But Michigan took it too far. And so now... There was punishment. There had to be accountability. There is no argument here that the University of Michigan had an assistant coach named Connor Stallions who was at other games. He was caught. He even was able to get paraphernalia from another team and be on the sidelines, which you usually have to have a credential for, at a Central Michigan football game in order to steal and get signs for an upcoming mission appointment. So there's no doubt that this happened. What remains in question, and how would I would argue right, is, is trivial, but what does remain in question is who knew? Was it just the coordinators who Coach Stallions was reporting to Did would make it all the way up to the top? Here's the thing, doesn't matter. Coach Harbaugh is in charge. He is the one who hired Stallions. He is the one who ultimately bore and bears the responsibility and has to be accountable for the information that he received from Coach Stuyens, or that anybody on his staff, for that matter, received from Coach Stuyens because he is the head, he is the face of um, of that team, of that program. This is someone who built a reputation and a kind of coaching brand for himself, doing it the right way at the University of San Diego, at Stanford, San Francisco 49ers. And now at this stop at Michigan, this is his second incident where he now has to face accountability. And I think this is something that's not getting enough light as this is being bandied back and forth. When you have to be held accountable more than once, there has to be an escalation of the accountability measure, or the teeth as I like to call it, because you've got to slap on the wrist the first time. Coach Harbaugh had to sit out games at the beginning um, of a recent season for some other issue. So now we have another transgression. There has to be an escalation. So here's the issue that currently as it stands, Coach Harbaugh will not be able to coach the remainder of the regular season games for Wolverines. So he was literally on a plane to Happy Valley to play Penn State this weekend. They said, you're not coaching. You get to coach during the week. You do not get to be on the sidelines during this game or the next few games. He will, if Michigan makes it into the Final Four of the college football playoffs, he will get to be a part of that if they make it that far. My issue here is that accountability, again, needs to have teeth. Coach Harbaugh, his program, have priors. So for me, just suspending him from being on the sidelines on game day, not far enough. Especially given that you do still have questions, especially given that the NCAA, which is the governing body, and you can say what you want about it, has not finished their investigation. What I would have done if I was on the Big Ten committee, I was in charge of this, so it doesn't look like you know, I am too biased in this situation, even though you're always going to argue bias. We all have them. Suspend Harbaugh indefinitely until the investigation is finished. Perhaps that makes the NCAA have to speed up their investigation. But there's no way, given what you already have, that Coach Harbaugh should still be able to have contact with his team during the week as they prepare games that is not full accountability and he should be able to take that and i know the ad has to cape up and defend his guy and call for due process and all that good stuff but if you are trying to remain a credible organization and still have top players and their families come to it i wouldn't be barking so much because it is clear that something has happened here a rule has been broken and again leadership must be accountable And that goes not only for Coach Harbaugh, but his AD and ultimately his president. So, accountability, my first word. Second word, productivity. So, don't want to be a political pundit, but I am an American citizen. It was announced over the weekend that new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, has put before Congress a proposal that would avoid a government shutdown. Productivity is another word that comes up in my leadership class. When we're thinking about a leader, you have to get things done. It is incumbent that this country does not go into a shutdown because we don't have a balanced budget. It has to get done. So I appreciate that for the moment, it appears all the reindeer games that politicians play in order to stay in office, get reelected, raise money and do all those things have been put on hold to make sure that the business of the country, it gets done. But we'll also extend that to the Senate. Hopefully they will take this vote and extend our funding until the next deadline when they have to again vote. Because my understanding is this proposal only takes us through the new year. You have to be productive. The train has to keep running or you lose credibility you lose the opportunity to be in charge, at least the way that it should be. So whether it's funding the government, whether it's keeping a school safe, whether it's keeping a company running so that people can can be employed, feed their families, productivity is a very key piece of leadership. I mean, every now and again, people will say to me, you know, you should run for office. And all of the rigmarole that has been going since the first deadline that Congress missed to get this done would drive me crazy. Absolutely bonkers. The same for the SAG and WGA strikes, 100 plus days for both of them when these deals could have gotten done. People posturing and pontificating, holding up the works, and then after billions of dollars have been lost, in the case of Saginaftra, now the producers want to come to the table and get it done. I think in both cases, a hard two weeks of negotiating was really all it took. So, productivity is my second word. Final word is vision. The Final word is vision. You have to be able to see not only what's in front of you, but a couple steps ahead of you so that you can stay out in front. This is something that I'm always looking at and thinking about when it comes to schools because schools get comfortable, enrollments are high, advancements breaking records, endowments are great, and then schools can get comfortable. But then the world changes. and Now the things that you were doing in order to get to that top position no longer work, no longer are even relevant. And now you're behind. So vision is critical. You don't have vision. You're not going to have a great shelf life as a leader. I'm going to stop there. 'Cause I want to get to my friend Rachel Scarrett, who I take a lot of leadership lessons from. She has done this school leadership thing for a while now. She is going to join us next, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Hey. All right. It is my pleasure to have an office hours this week. One of my good, 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 good friends going all the way back to college. She is my school leadership role model, Sherpa, to say the least. My good friend, Rachel Scarrett, who not only went to Boston Latin School, but then went back and was the principal at Boston Latin School. And she can tell you all about Boston Latin in a moment and how great of a place that it is. But welcome, my friend. How are you? Hi, John. So excited to be on Taking Notes. So, give me the actual stats, because I didn't want to butcher them. Boston Latin is oldest high school in the country or something like that? Uh, a little more. It's
1: actually the oldest public school in America, regardless of... So, just period. Oldest school founded in 1635. So, we have our 400th coming up in a little bit. Um, and... Yeah, we are currently, according to U.S. News & World Report, the number one ranked public school in Massachusetts. We send 98, 99 percent of our students to um, college each year. And what's more important than that is that upwards of 90 percent of them complete college and thrive in college. And and that's really our mission. It's a college preparatory school, grades 7 through twelve. And I'm a private and I was the head of school, as you mentioned, uh, for five years
0: pretty recently. So more importantly than anything you just said, there will remain a painting of you in the hallway somewhere, yes? <laughs> uh, they do uh, portraits
1: of the he- formerly called headmasters, now called head of school in the auditorium. Yes. So that's that's in progress. Not yet, though.
0: There we go. <laughs> there we go. I was aspired to one of those. My independent school had that where they would do the commemorative presidential-like picture in uh, yeah. your tenure. Pretty, pretty
1: your so So... day Wiley did not call me back, but I got an ah, awesome artist. Um, gotta I, try. Great. <laughs>
0: <laughs> gotta get to know. So I wanted to have you on because every year and probably multiple times a year, there are events that hit national news, that involves students and teachers and often districts depending on if it's public or private school. And I wonder just like, how did this, how did this happen? Like, how did it get to a point where things went so wrong, um, that, you know, you have these events, um, you know, graffiti events, blackface, Halloween costume events, um, all kinds of wild assemblies that, you know, are allowed to happen in school. And then there's crazy aftermath. So, I thought, who better than to talk about these things and give, you know, added perspective of someone who ran a large institution, multiple institutions, um, than you, my friend. so the one that I picked out for you, I'm just going to lay some context, and then we'll get into your response, is Bella Vista High School, which is in my neck of the woods, a little north of me in California, had a homecoming parade. And in this homecoming parade, they had floats and the float that won for the junior class featured a cops and robbers type theme, which depending on which article you read had been vetoed by the school, but it was allowed to go ahead. And you had a black student in an orange jumpsuit sitting behind bars and two white students who were in police uniforms leading this float along the field. And it won as voted by the faculty and staff. And of course, all heck breaks loose afterwards in the school and in the district. So, having thrown up that alley, you, you read that article and what? I have to say, John, that um,
1: uh, with pleasure that this did not make my radar until you sent it to me. Uh, and I can't say that I'm sad about that. Um Really, awkward. I will say behind the scenes,
0: you were never a fan when I would send you stuff that would happen in schools. <laughs> yeah, would yeah, cause was turmoil in a school because you very much had or continue to have probably PTSD of stuff.
1: Well, you, so you have done. your own stuff going on. You know, you don't need the articles. Um, just as a side note, I think you got caught up in a couple of our group texts because. My assistant head of school's name was also Jonathan. So sometimes when I would rush a group text phone you and you'd be like, good luck, Holmes. Um, so, so yeah. Um, but I mean, there, you have to wonder how the float ever got to the field, right? There were so many judgment calls along the, so many steps that, um, you know, you just wonder why. Why did all hell break loose when it did? Was it just because it made the media? Uh, it also makes you wonder that you know there are still things that happen that don't make the media. So how many things like this occur that we don't even know about or cross our radars, right? Um, but it's an abomination on on so many levels. Uh, I don't. Well, I mean,
0: what's the question, <laughs> So the, the question would be: Let's say it has gotten so far that this float has been made it has now hit the field, and now you're seeing it for the first time. Let's say, you know, you're so busy as head of school that, you know, your APs or, you know, some some head of a, a grade is in charge of, of approving these things, you haven't seen it, but now it does hit the field. Where, what happens for leader Rachel at that point? What is your first thought?
1: I think I have to rewind, John, because I think as a leader, When you think about events that are going to define your identity as a school, you think about traditions, you think about homecoming, you think about places where alums come back, you think about your public facing and your private facing, but particularly large events, right, where students are on display, they're showing their best. Um, It really shouldn't be a moment where that was the first time the school leader sees something. uh, Absolutely Certainly, you don't want to micromanage a a float contest. Like, it doesn't sound important enough to devote your important hours as an instructional leader. And at the same time, you want to have a culture where when students are proposing themes and things, that there is a clearance process, right? So my understanding is at some point there was a cops and robbers theme to homecoming. I just can't imagine that theme working out great um it just, in many ways it seems fraught i'll say right and so you know it seems fraught and so even before students make decisions about reenactments and roles and stereotypes and you know just tropes we want to do a cops and robbers theme for a public facing you know is it a homecoming or, is, or whatever yeah.
0: yeah this is homecoming
1: that's a no <laughs> right um, you know, something so much more minor at my school. You know, seniors deserve all the fun, right? And so seniors want to do a lot of things. Aaron, and we, um, you know, have for many years done like Wacky Wednesdays, right? Different theme clothing, right? That list has to get approved. yeah. Of the... And even that doesn't prevent sometimes a outfit decision that maybe you wouldn't have endorsed. But you at least want to be able to stand by the theme. So mistake number one was that ever being a theme. I think you then just have to go back and ask yourself, what is the, what is the culture at this school that teachers would throw themselves into this situation to the point where they would vote at a winner without see- seeing the deep problematic nature of it? It doesn't suggest that there's been much around. I can't even call it implicit bias. I mean, it's so explicit, right? right? Just doesn't seem as if culturally responsive practices were high on the radar to get to the point where the staff, I didn't realize that it was the staff that voted it the winner. Deeply problematic. Next, you know, I read that the demographics of the school, uh, were very low percentages of kids of color, particularly Black students. Was it two percent or something like that? Black students, four percent
0: Asian, seven multiracial.
1: Yeah. So you know, you think about what experiences are like with those numbers. You know, in terms of what the social experience may be for young people uh, in order to build their social network, because there were also some decisions on the part of students. Right. And when you have a high school, you have to also think about those decision points, too. You know, the adults always have to protect students all the way through until they're adults. But high school students have a lot of agency. Right. right? So I think you also have to ask, what's the support system for students of color in that community? Is there an affinity group? Is there an advisor? Is there someone to go to when they feel microaggressions when they might feel pressured into fulfilling a role when they might volunteer for a role in order to be more accepted you know are where where are these things getting processed and what's the adult population you know are there efforts at you know diversity in terms of the leadership team the staff the counseling team etc so i think they're all that they're all those things before the float hits the stage i mean if I had been, you know, um, in hibernation
0: <laughs>
1: and woke, woke up the minute before the float hit the field, and that was the very first moment I saw it, I mean, I really think I might have to go out there. And I mean, I'm probably not big enough to cover the float, or the body, not, it's not, it's not but there, there certainly would not be a vote. And if I couldn't stop the vote, then and they won. I'll tell you a secret about leadership. Sometimes democracy does not win. Oh democracy. no! Democracy. No. No, no, no. The vote comes out. That vote may need to remain a secret.
0: Yeah, but never dictatorship might that, have to take over.
1: Right. But but really, it, it it shouldn't shouldn't get there. And I think I was probably the most, you know, when I thought about all the people involved, I think where my empathy and concern and curiosity really went is to the students who made the decision to be a part of that, um, particularly Mm. the students of color and what their mindset was, what supports they had, what, what went into their decision. If they felt like it was problematic, if they felt like it was funny, you know, teenagers have different types of humor these days, you know, that sometimes they have to be supported through and coached through. Right. Right. Um, you know, it made me wonder, I was trying to imagine all the things that a, a teenager might say to me when we sat down to talk about this. Maybe someone might say, oh, we were just highlighting the stereotypes, right? We were just trying to, to, um, you know, sat- make it satire or right. something like that, right? Dark humor. Yeah, and I think that also makes me wonder if... There are other more constructive spaces for students to take leadership roles around educating their peers in that environment, right? Because you certainly can take any movie off the shelf or any piece of popular culture and do a screening and pick apart the stereotypes and, you know, the biases in it and have a really constructive dialogue about media and, um, you know, and its effect on the characterization of Historically marginalized people, you know, there's there there's all types of ways to do that in an educational setting that are respectful, productive, inclusive. So all of those things cross my mind. Like I just wanted, just wanted to get those babies in my my office and be like, what happened? Yeah,
0: but well, and I found it interesting before you. I ask you to spin it forward that the statement is from, from the district officials. We are working with our black student union and several community partners engaging in additional professional learning. And I said, like, well, wait, you didn't again, it's yeah. a float takes a long time to put yeah. together. Like I've never made a float, but I've seen the Rose Bowl a few times. Like people knew what was gonna be on this float before it hit the field. So I'm just I'm I wonder like were were the cries ignored, you know, about this float that's coming or you know, was is the Black Student Union such that you know they didn't get to say or voice an opinion about this float, or right, or
1: did the outrage only come when it entered a uh, public space? Public space, and there may—I mean, you don't know who's in that in the group. You don't nope. know if all all young people. Again, you don't know where the advising is, right? You don't. And you, you know, there's a title that you should assume carries some, you know. Authority carries some social responsibility, sense of justice. Um, but we don't know that. I mean, they could have just put that black student union together after the float.
0: That was impossible. Awesome. So many questions, John. So many questions. But but I'm 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 glad because you now I'll get on here and pick up pick apart stuff. You know, I, I did an episode where I was kind of picking apart our fine alma maters you know, handling of recent events and and why people were dragging their feet. I've kind of had that critique blanket from many institutions that I've heard about, you know, and, and hear from peers at different places. And so this one is just like, why and how? So I'm glad I'm not the only one. The question I want to ask you to wrap this up though is, so now you're in charge of this, as they mentioned, professional learning, right? What does that look like? You know, how do you even begin that? Because as you mentioned, did clear, that there hasn't been a whole lot of cultural competency training, you know, or education that's happening for, you know, staff to not have a red flag when a float like this comes out, you know, much less voting it a winner.
1: There are so many different starting points that you could use in order to, you know, widen folks' aperture on how they see the world, right? You know, you could start from, you know, trying to just start with implicit bias, you know, we all have them talk about how they're shaped. There are so many exercises that you can actually go through that support your bias in terms of, you know, your visual associations, you know, things that can be really effective to just remind you how quickly we, um, you know, jump to conclusions um, based a lot on our external influences. And. The fact that everyone has those biases often sometimes brings down the level of defensiveness in terms of, you know, how folks feel about what, what are you saying about me? What are you calling me? Etc. So you could do that. It, it seems like there's probably a level of history that could be um, that could be reviewed with mm-hmm. adult community in terms of, you know, the you know, the history of of schooling in America. Um, and and racism and schooling in America could be just one one through line, you know. Never mind, just the entire, um, you know, black experience, you know, from right or just to the, the black experience. I mean, there's like, so many spit, like there's so many different. Yeah, I mean, you can exactly you the, the going back to the cops and Roberts theme. You could kind of zoom in specifically on why that was. I'll use my word again, fraught. <laughs> mm. But I actually think that where I might want to start with this staff is to really try to talk to. I mean, it seems like even if the school is 2,000 kids, it's not that many. I'd, I'd really want to talk to every every student of color. You said it was, you know, I, you said it's Black, Asian, and multiracial. I'd want to talk to as many students as possible to really learn what their day to day experience is being a literal minority, right? In that community, numerically, yeah, right? And I actually think that sometimes the most effective starting point for teachers for whom like privilege, difference, racism isn't firmly on their radar is to hear the perspective of their students. Uh, Because the vast, vast majority, and I know you know this, of educators love their students, right? And are there because they really want to see children thrive, You know, and that's sometimes through a set of biases, through a set of challenges, through, you know, a lot of doesn't mean that everyone's excellent, but the vast majority of folks get into schools for the kids. And so when you hear that your kids are hurting or your kids don't feel seen or your students don't feel affirmed or that they have to swallow their point of view in a class discussion because they feel as if it's not safe or, you know, the things that students could articulate more effectively than any of us could because it's their own experience. I think I might start there in this specific situation um, because I think that would probably give teachers and staff the quickest pause next time they were thinking through some choices that needed to be made they might remember i remember when john said that you know they felt this way the last time a teacher said that or did that um so i I might start with a panel or you know having some of some of our young people really just just share their truth and go from there
0: yeah you took the words right out of my mouth about the, the, the the value when change needs to be made or The effectiveness of students expressing their harm on you know a teacher potentially making a shift in philosophy and or belief so speaking of belonging that brings me to the second article that i sent you that i wanted to get your thoughts on and it's about this group of mothers in texas texas old texas who i would say rightfully have determined that public schooling in Texas does not be right by Black children. We have you know, seen that in data. They quote, rightfully, you know, suspension rates and how Black children are over overrepresented in suspension rates in Texas vis-a-vis, you know, their percentage of makeup in the public schools. And so they have decided to do a hybrid of what you, I what I'd call homeschooling and, you know, small classroom, we call it a micro school. And so the thing that I found interesting about this article, because people have been homeschooling their children for years. And I think, you know, if you do the, re- if you look at research on that, the uptick in communities of color is is growing, certainly out of COVID. But these, this group, this collective is saying that effectively they should be eligible for voucher programs, you know, and, and they disguise it in a nice term here. What were these called educational accounts that should be set aside by the government? so that, you know, they can pursue this this micro school homeschooling option. So, again, I throw it to you, school leader, you know, Mm -hmm. who has probably dealt with, you know, probably not at Latin, because, I mean, you heard the resume of Boston Latin, but in other places you've been, the idea that the school's not doing right by my child, I'm doing something else, and I want to take money out of the public school system to do that. How does that land for you in general?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's a it's a tough one for me because just regardless of whether it's a, a micro school or a traditional independent school, I don't believe in the voucher program. I, you know, am a huge supporter of public education um and believe that, you know, it's it's so essential for our country to have a thriving national public education system that Every family should be able to at least consider as a choice when they're making their decisions for their children, decisions that are deeply personal, right? Mm-hmm. So everybody of course, should do what they'd like. I have family members who homeschooled their children from the beginning and have had really successful experiences. I have, you know, um, my niece is in an independent school in, in Massachusetts now. Obviously, I'm a, well, my son's in, in public school in Boston. Um but I know that the state of public schools as they are right now, sadly, in many communities, families don't even feel like they can consider it, um, mm-hmm. which is so deeply unfortunate um, there. I don't think that the decision not to participate in the public school system, as warranted as that decision may be based on your circumstance, gar- Like should mean for you that you get government funding to do your own thing, right? And I I read the article twice to try to find the, like, credential or qualification of the instruction that would, you know, warrant this being any different from any parent deciding to choose a homeschool curriculum for their young person. I couldn't find it. You know, you think about one of the key differences between independent schools and public schools is that public schools have really stringent licensure requirement. Mm-hmm. By the mm-hmm. You know, you can't just say, you know, you're you're good at math. Get in here. Teach. Right. Well, after COVID, you kind of can, but we'll get you an emergency certificate. There's at least an emergency protocol. Yeah. 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 But there yeah. is. You know, there is a process, there are degrees required, there are certain courses that you have to take to make sure that, you know, that you have some exposure to some of the things that you might encounter in a classroom. And so you think about if that's a threshold in order to be a a public institution that's getting funding, you know, what is the equivalent if you're just, you know, a group of friends who are understandably fed up Wanting to do something different. I'm just wondering, you know, where's the line? How would that work? I also noticed that the article did not really articulate any instructional position on what the schools would be. You know, they talked about needing to cater to students' individual needs. I didn't know if that meant, you know, um, interests as a scholar. I didn't know if that meant learning differences. I didn't know. What that meant. Um, so it did seem as if, you know, it was the culture of the school and the treatment of the young people that was moving these moms to opt out. Understandably, if you feel as if your child is being singled out, is being disproportionately disciplined, all of those things. But it it is always unfortunate when it feels like we have to choose between like a safe and affirming space for our students and actual learning content because they're really, really important. Um, and there are a lot of places that are, you know, loving and, and hugging on kids and not giving them the rigorous learning experiences that they need to be on grade level and be prepared for post secondary anything, not even necessarily four year college, but, you know, um, industry certification, anything. And so we're in a step
0: talking about kids. You may not even be able to read to get to competitive high school. Right. Right. Like, you know, depending on which grade, like it doesn't even necessarily say which grades this is happening in. Right. Um, And then I would also say, you know, and what I see often is you mentioned the places that are loving on kids, not giving them the rigor, which is damaging. And then there are the places that are giving them the rigor and families are feeling like they have to get the rigor at the sacrifice of the belonging love, and love. affirmation and the love that's right so it's a rock and a hard place i, I certainly like you feel for the for these for this collective but at the same time I, I think it's a bold it's a it's effectively like give us our reparations while you at it you know and this these educational reparations you know <laughs> since you can't do schooling right
1: i just think it's so tough you know i i can't imagine how fractured these parents must feel from the school community when you feel like you can't work with the leader to try to make the institution better. And I think that that's also the sign of a good leader, because I can't say I've ever, you know, I've had my share of, of families be upset leaving my office or, or disagreeing with a decision about a young person. Um, but it's very different when someone's, you know, pulling their student out of the system entirely um, and, and you know hopefully that leader is making an effort to communicate to those families you are wanted you're a valued member of this community and you know let's join this committee join this working group let's figure out what's happening let's look at this data together let's you know do some strategies let's get some expertise from the folks who live with the young people every day you know how can we come to the table together and I think that's a step that's often not happening that makes people quicker to opt out because they don't even feel welcomed into the conversation around
0: how to make things better. That brings up one last question from you before I let you go in the places that you have led and you've led some diverse places, you know, Mm -hmm. that again had, you know, histories of achievement. Have you found that in the communities of color, there was that same level of engagement, um, that was leading towards some of the stat- statistics that you noted in terms of graduation rate, college matriculation rate, or was it just kind of the culture of the culture of the school and lifting all, you know, high tide lifts all boats type situation?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think I've, I did most recently work at, at a school at my alma mater, Boston Latin, which is a, a college prep school um but before that i was a principal at a comprehensive high school in washington dc eastern high school um that had a very different profile both demographically and in terms of its you know um academic achievement history and um i was a principal of a third small school in addition to that and i think there are not families you can find who don't want their students to be successful right I think the entry points that are created for families to engage really have to be thoughtful and diverse. Um, and they really have to begin with being a welcoming place when families set foot in. Um, and I think some schools have less work to do and it's a little easier than others. You know, Boston Latin is certainly easier. Um, you know, you have a college fair night and, you know, 85 percent of the families come out to come to the fair at the school. Um, but it. Everyone wants to know how their young person is doing. Everyone wants to know how their young person can do better. And so just really figuring out how to make that message one of partnership between the home and school maybe has to change in your context. Um, but I, I really it's one of my huge pet peeves when we talk about various communities who don't value education because I just haven't found that community, you know, in my almost 25 years in education. It just it doesn't exist. It's a it's a quick excuse that we that we use, right? That families are, well, you know, you just you can't get families here. Well, why? And we asked, like, you know, that doesn't, that does not equate to their not caring about their student success. Um, there are just some other things we have to consider. So yeah, I don't know if that answered your your question.
0: Definitely answers the question you end on on a high note, Gem. The idea that certain communities don't care about education versus others. Um, it really becomes a question of those entry points that you're talking about. So, my friend, thank you for taking the time out. Again, I know you. you are a busy lady, and we will hopefully you enjoyed yourself. You want to do it again because it, it, there are always things that arise and hit the national media where I'm like, what was the leadership thinking? And now I have, you know, someone who has done this to really bounce these things off of and discuss with um, because the reason I do this is that not only do I get to share, you know, my experience with folks who ask me stuff, but hopefully bring people to the table who I get to be in community with. Um, and I lean on, for wisdom and expertise. Uh, When I have questions, you are certainly of that number. So hopefully you'll join us
1: again. I would be remiss if I I didn't end on the note to say I'm happy to come back and talk about all the crazy stories that make the news. But I know for all of the leaders out there, um, and yourself being one of them, that our best days never make the news. Um, Most days, you know, we're working hard to be there for students and for for the adults in the building to make sure they have what they need to be there for students. Um, And I just really applaud and recognize anyone who's getting up and working in a school every day right now. It's one of the most important jobs in the world and always will be. Um, And, you know, just really, really appreciate um, your leadership and, and dedication, whatever school type you're in.
0: And I would add colleges and universities right now because they are they are mm. hot places, hot places to be. So thank you, Rach. I will check in with you again soon. We appreciate you yeah. talking about. There she goes, the Rachel Scarrett. Clearly, you can see why she has been leading institutions for the last good number of years. We will get into who needs to come see the dean and the honor roll right after this. In the Dean's office this week, I need to see former senator from my home state of Pennsylvania, Rick Santorum, who, while doing analysis after Tuesday's elections bemoan the fact that issues like abortion and marijuana were on the ballot, saying thank goodness that most of the states in this country don't allow you to put everything on the ballot because pure democracy is not the way to run a country. I'd be very curious to find out then, if not a democracy, what Senator Santorum's version of running this country would look like I, for one, still would much prefer a democracy versus any type of autocracy that he might put out there. So, Rick Santorum, I would love to have a conversation with you in the dean's office. And to go back to the beginning of our show, hear about this vision that you have for the country. On the honor roll this week, I'd like to salute the 100th mayor of my hometown, Philadelphia, and the first woman, Sherelle Parker, on making history, taking over for Mayor Jim Kinney. Congratulations, Ms. Parker. Looking forward to seeing how you move the city forward every time I am home. I am pleased to see the progress that has been made and I look forward to seeing how you uphold your promises of making it safer, cleaner, and greener. Again, salute to Sherelle Parker, the new mayor-elect in the city of Philadelphia. That's it for me this week, friends. Look forward to next week where I'll be talking Sports because it is basketball season and the crazy sports parent in me is excited. So be sure to check in next week. Hope you have a great one this week and we will see you then. The views expressed by John Carroll and his guest in the preceding podcast are solely that of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers, companies, or other associated parties. Thank mm-hmm. you.